pray together. Father, um, in the face of all we suffer in this world, all the violence, all the injustice, all the bullying, all the oppression, in the face of all the corruption, all the greed, all the poverty, in the face of all the deceit, all the lies, all the misinformation, in the face of all the narcissism, all the selfishness and the self-gratification, we have this one sure and certain hope. You are good all the time, and all the time you are good. And not only are you good, Father, but you are all-powerful. You hold all the power and authority over every nation, every tribe, every clan, every family, every person on the face of the earth. You even control creation itself. And not only are you all good, and not only are you all-powerful, but you are also just you will not let the guilty go unpunished. No matter how strong or invincible a person, government, or institution may be, no matter how impossible a situation may seem, they will face your judgment. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, God, not only are you good, not only are you all-powerful, not only are you just, but you are love. And your love is fierce and steadfast and loyal and true, and it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and never fails. And so this morning, we come before you as a people, and we ask you to reveal yourself to us yet again through your word. By your spirit, open our eyes and our hearts that we might better see you and understand you for who you are, and thereby see and understand ourselves for who we are, and fall on our knees in worship. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Thanks, team. One of my uh, favorite books growing up was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Y'all read that book? Anybody know that book? Yeah, several of us. If not, it's, it's a great book to pick up even as an adult and read. It's, a, it's sort of a classic children's fantasy story written by C.S. Lewis. It, uh, it really describes the Christian faith using a lot of symbolism and allegory. Um, you might even be interested to know that it's considered a brilliant example of the type of medieval literature of which Lewis was a scholar at Oxford, so much so that it's studied in universities all across the country. In fact, I took a class on it up at CU, if you, up at CU, if you can believe that. Um, and one of the, the best scenes from the book comes when the children are on their way uh, to finally meet Aslan, who is the Christ figure in the story, the great lion. Um, and, and he's come to break the oppressive rule of the evil white witch and put an end to the eternal winter of her reign. And so like any children, they're curious as to who Aslan is. And so they start asking all these questions, right? And so Susan asks, who is Aslan? And, and Mr. Beaver, because again, in the Narnia series, right, it's all these talking animals. Mr. Beaver replies, Aslan, well, don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. And he's going to settle the white queen, all right? He will put all to rights, as it says in an old rhyme in these parts. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. And you'll understand that when you see him. And so Lucy asks, well, is he a man? And, and Mr. Beaver replied, Aslan, a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. 
Oh, Susan said, I thought he was a man. I mean, is he, is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous meeting a lion. And Mrs. Beaver replied, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is good. He's the king, I tell you. Today we are going to be diving into the next minor prophet in our series, the book of Nahum. And fair warning, Nahum is full of all kinds of judgment and wrath and destruction. In fact, it's almost all ruin and very little restoration. And it's a scary book when you stop to think about it because of how it describes the vengeance of God. And if we're not careful, we can get caught up in fear. We can fall into the trap of believing God is is this unstable, filled with rage, flying off the handle kind of God who at a moment's notice could just lay waste to everything. And that will create emotional and spiritual distance between us and God. Because the worst thing in the world would be to worship an all-powerful God who can't control himself. Nothing scarier than that. All right? An all-powerful God who isn't good. An all-powerful God who isn't trustworthy. Who's arbitrary or or capricious. That's what the pagan gods of the ancient world were known for. And so what is it that makes the Christian God different? After all, the big question we're trying to answer with this series is, in a world that's falling apart, what is God doing to put it all back together? And if we can't trust God to put it all back together, if he isn't good and doesn't want to put it all back together, then perhaps we are all just wasting our time here. So as we've done week after week, let me set the stage by giving you just a bit of background on this book. And then we'll look to answer again that question of what is God doing to bring restoration out of ruin? Well, Nahum means God comforts in the original Hebrew. And Nahum's prophetic ministry was designed by God to be a comfort for his people. Nahum prophesied probably somewhere between 663 BC and 612 BC, uh, over a hundred years after uh, the prophet Jonah. And if you were here a few weeks back, you know that Jonah was sent by God to Nineveh to preach repentance. And you know that the Ninevites, from the greatest to the least, miraculously responded to his preaching and they bowed the knee to God. But sadly, that revival didn't last. The Assyrians were soon back to their brutal, violent ways. And in 663 B.C., they were knocking on the door of Egypt at a city called Thebes, which was located on the Nile River. And a famous historical battle ensued. Nahum refers to it in chapter 3. And and the Assyrians were victorious, setting themselves up to be the major power in the region. However, they had made a major miscalculation along the way. In 722 B.C., they had invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and massacred. God's chosen people. They literally wiped 10 of the 12 tribes off the map. Furthermore, they threatened the southern kingdom of Judah as well in Jerusalem. And this begs the question Nahum is seeking to answer in his book. Will God be faithful to his people? Will he defend them? Will he take up their cause? Will he protect them? Will he judge those who have attacked them and oppressed them and sought to do them harm? In other words, in the wake of the ruin of the northern kingdom and facing the potential ruin of the southern kingdom, will God bring restoration? Will he bring restoration? 
So if you've got your Bibles or Bible apps, let's go ahead and answer that question. Open up with me to the book of Nahum. Nahum is located just past the halfway point in the Minor Prophets, which again are the last 12 books of the Old Testament. It's a shorter book, only three chapters in length, and we're going to be sort of jumping all over the place, so get ready here. Um, and and what I wanna, where I want to begin is where Nahum begins, and that is with the character of God. The character of God. The opening eight verses are essentially a psalm that Nahum is either quoting or has written himself, extolling the nature and the character of God. And it includes statements like, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Nahum chapter 1 verse 2. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Nahum chapter 1 verse 3. And the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Nahum chapter 1 verse 7. Now, I know some of those adjectives are not the first things that come to mind when we think of God, right? In fact, they may even make us uncomfortable. God is jealous. God is vengeful. We don't like to think about God in those terms. We don't even like to describe ourselves in those terms. From a human perspective, jealousy is a problem, right? Uh, from a human perspective, vengeance is frowned upon. And so why in the world would Nahum attribute these qualities and characteristics to God? Well, the jealousy of God, friends, is not like human jealousy. It's not based on envy or selfishness. It, what it signifies is God's passion for his own glory. God's passion for his holiness. God's passion for his people. What we sang about earlier, right? When we sang holy, holy, holy. God has a passion to preserve that and to protect that. And God's jealousy is protective in that way. It's protective of his people, protective of the covenant that he has made with them. Because God is jealous for us, friends, he hates to see us suffer. He hates it when we, when we experience injustice or oppression. He hates what the world does to us. He hates what sin does to us. He hates what we do to ourselves. And because he's jealous for us, he must then act to right every wrong. Assyria uh, not only destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C., but again tried to destroy the southern kingdom of Judah in 701 B.C. as well. And they would have succeeded except for God's miraculous intervention. You can read all about that in Isaiah chapter 36 and 37. Because Assyria had far overstepped her bounds in brutally oppressing the people of God, they would now become subject to God's vengeance. God would send the Babylonians against them in 612 B.C. and so thoroughly destroy their capital city of Nineveh that it would remain buried in the sand for over 2,000 years until it was finally rediscovered in 1842 A.D. Think about that. It's destroyed in 612 B.C., disappears from history until 1842 A.D. And you can actually see it today outside of Mosul in Iraq, right? And lest anyone think God has lost his temper and flown off the handle, Nahum clearly points out that God is slow to anger. He waited over 150 years before destroying Nineveh, right? And he warned them through the prophet Jonah and, and, you know, and, 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 and actually reached out to them, right? 
And God was well within his rights to wipe Nineveh out many years before, but he was patient with her, wanting her to come to repentance. Now sadly, when she stubbornly persisted in her brutal, violent, sinful ways, God's patience gave way to his righteous judgment and power, and he brings that great empire to her knees. He brings it to ruin. Now, let me just pause here and say this. There are some in our in our country today, some in our culture today, even among Christians, who seem to delight in a God of unlimited power. They they like the idea of God laying down judgment. They want God to lash out. It's like they want God to rain fire from heaven. They want God to punish their enemies. I can't tell you the number of preachers I have seen recently on social media who love the idea of condemning sinners. I even saw some in the wake of the Super Bowl ads arguing that God doesn't love the world, but in fact hates sinners and only loves those who love him in return. Friends, biblically speaking, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still at war with God, he laid down his life for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It doesn't get any more clear than that. God desires that all would be saved and come to a knowledge of his truth. Why does God do all these things for us? Why does he love us so much? Because God isn't just all-powerful. He is also innately and inherently good. He's good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He he is a refuge for all those who seek him. God will never turn you away. God will never turn his back on you. He will never stop pursuing you. He will never stop coming after you. His goodness, his goodness will never stop coming after you. He is the good shepherd who chases down every lost sheep. And it doesn't matter how far we wander or stray. And it doesn't matter what we've done or where we've been. And it doesn't matter how many terrible decisions that we make or how many times we hurt others or even how often we hurt ourselves. God loves us so much he gave his life for us. Amen? That's our God, friends. And at the same time, we can't take this God for granted. We can't presume upon his grace. We can't make a mockery of this great love. We should never interpret God's love as soft or sentimental. God never compromises his justice and his righteousness or his holiness. And that's why he often brings ruin upon humanity. He rightfully judges us for our sin. The sins listed in chapters 2 and 3 of this book, and there are many, could be used to describe, frankly, every human empire throughout history, including our own, including the one that we live in. Deceit, violence, idolatry, these things are endemic to the human condition. Yes, Assyria was full of lies. She engaged in all kinds of idolatry and witchcraft. She was one of the most brutal, violent empires in human history. But are we really all that much different? I mean, if we're honest, think about the amount of disinformation and misinformation that is intentionally pushed across all media platforms in our culture today. Consider the lies our leaders tell from both sides of the political aisle on a regular basis. Look at the violence in our nation's history, especially towards people of color, or the violence we see almost on a daily basis in our streets or at Super Bowl parades or on college campuses, you name it. Nowhere seems to be safe. And what about idolatry? 
Just because we don't worship statues made of wood or stone or precious metal doesn't mean that our hearts aren't churning out idols day after day after day after day. Last evening, as Gary said, I had the pleasure of preaching for the Denver Telugu Fellowship, the Indian community that meets here on Saturday nights. Such a delight, right? It's so awesome. I really encourage you to come next Saturday. It's going to be amazing, right? And I talked with several folks after the service, and they shared with me how they came to saving faith out of Hinduism, all right? And they talked about how the idols of their old religion were so obvious, right? I mean, they actually were statues that they worshipped, right? And, and now that they've come to saving faith, they're realizing that the idols they carry in their hearts are so much more dangerous. And I totally agree, right? We idolize money, possessions, success, lifestyle, sex, you name it. Perhaps most of all, we idolize self. Anything that doesn't gratify our selfish desires is not just considered bad, it's actually considered toxic and abusive and unhealthy. And that's the complete opposite of how Jesus calls us to live. He calls us to deny ourselves in order to follow him. Our culture says you must you must gratify yourself in order to have a healthy life. The things could not be more obvious. It could not be more clear. And is it any wonder then that we find ourselves falling under God's judgment? Romans chapter 1, right? The fulfill, it's the fulfillment of Romans 1 where God in his righteous judgment says he simply gives humanity over to the lusts of our hearts, to, do, to our dishonorable passions, and to a debased mind. And that pretty much describes our culture today. Like C.S. Lewis says in another one of his books titled The Great Divorce, he says there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. That's the hard but honest reality, friends. And, and, the, and, it, and it's this, it's humanity brings ruin upon herself. We've met the enemy. He is us. I look at him every morning in the mirror, Right? Thankfully, all is not lost, though. Because God's ultimate will for us is not ruin, it is restoration, right? And so sprinkled throughout, uh, you know, this book, especially in chapter, the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, right, are some wonderful promises from God. He says, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Nahum chapter 1, verse 12. I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. Uh, Nahum chapter 1 verse 13. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. Nahum chapter 2 verse 2. You see, though God's anger may last for a moment, his favor lasts a lifetime. The judgment of God is a temporal reality meant to bring us to our knees in repentance. It is designed by God to humble us, to bring us to the point of surrender. Right, to bring us to the point where we're finally ready to, to give it all back to Him, to give it all up for Him. I remember falling under God's judgment myself when I was in Wisconsin prior to coming to Pepsi. And many of you know this story. I was blessed when I came out of seminary to have a very successful first job in ministry. I served a wonderful little church in Mobile, Alabama that was really struggling when I got there. You know, I remember my first elder retreat, leadership retreat. I'm 29 years old. I'm so excited about the future. You know how passionate I can get. And I talked to the elders. I'm like, where do you see ourselves in 10 years? And half of them said with a for sale sign out front. And I was like, you didn't tell me that during the interview. Would have been good to know, right? 
But over six years that I was there, God did amazing things. That church became vibrant and intergenerational. We crossed the color barrier for the first time in that church's history. Lots of amazing things were happening. And then God called Christy and I to a small town outside of Madison, Wisconsin called Sun Prairie, where he wanted us to plant a church. And, and we went in there so excited about the possibility and about the future. And I got to tell you, it was the worst 19 months of our lives. We struggled. I struggled tremendously. I failed spectacularly. I put a hole in my professional resume that I never thought I would ever recover from. My marriage was in trouble. I was in danger of losing my family. I was battling depression. My life was in ruins. Friends from our former church would ask us, did you hear God wrong? Did you not understand his will? Did you make a mistake? And believe me when I tell you, I asked God those very same questions. And you want to know his answer to me? He took me to Isaiah 53.10. I will never forget this. He took me to Isaiah 53.10 one night where it says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And yes, the passage is primarily talking about the suffering of Jesus, but it's also talking about what happens to those of us who follow Jesus at times in our lives. It was God's will to crush me in Wisconsin, to crush my ego, to crush my pride, to crush my dependence on self. It was God's will to bring me to grief and remind me that everything I touch will not turn to gold. That's not how life works. And as hard as that was for me to understand personally and professionally, and I wouldn't wish that time on my worst enemy, I wouldn't trade it for the world, for it was in the midst of the ruin of my life that I met God in a very powerful way, almost a second conversion experience on some level. And I finally surrendered. And I finally gave up and I finally let go and God began a great work of restoration Though God had afflicted me, he would afflict me no more. He broke the yoke of my own ego and set me free from the burden of my pride. He humbled me in the most profound way possible, and I have never looked back. I still remember coming off that season and interviewing here at Pepsi, who was coming off her own season of brokenness. And the final question that John Draper, who was leading the search committee along with Sarah Arnold, asked me was, what is your greatest fear if we offer you this position of senior pastor? And I said, well, let's just be honest. I mean, I'm coming off this really tough season and Pepsi's coming off this really tough season. This could be the worst rebound relationship in history and destroy us both. Or it could be for our mutual healing. And thanks be to God, it's been the latter. Amen? Yeah. God has restored my life. God has restored the life of of our church family over these last 15 years in amazing ways. And this is what he wants to do for all of us, friends. This is what he wants to do for every nation on earth, friends. This is what he wants to do for the world. He wants to bring restoration out of ruin. That's his will. And friends, that's the message we're called to proclaim. I love how chapter 1 ends essentially, right? Nahum quotes the prophet Isaiah when he says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of the one who brings good news who publishes peace, Nahum chapter 1, verse 15. Every time you and I leave this campus, right, we see the sign on the way out, you are now entering your mission field. And friends, having been filled with the Holy Spirit, you and I are now called to go out and share the good news of God's restoration with a world that finds herself in ruin. 
All of us know people whose lives are in ruin, marriages that are falling apart, families that are struggling, the pressures in our community, right, that people are facing with all the drug abuse and alcohol abuse, rising rates of depression and suicidal ideation. We all know the pressures our nation is under with inflation, the rising costs of living, high taxation, more and more people experiencing homelessness. We all see the pressures our world is facing with the violence and the suffering and the pain. And the only hope we have, friends, is the gospel. That's it. There's nothing else. The only hope we have is this good news of a God who loved the world so much he would enter in to the ruin of our experience to experience ruin himself. On the cross, God was ruined. On the cross, God took all his righteous judgment and anger on himself. On the cross, God satisfies the demands of his justice and his righteousness and his holiness. And he breaks the bonds of sin that once enslaved us. On the cross, God began a work of restoration that he promises he will bring to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. That's our hope, friends. We don't got anything else. It's the hope our friends and our family and our neighbors and our co-workers so desperately need. It's the hope that our community needs and our nation needs and our world needs, friends. And God doesn't have another plan to deliver that good news except through his church. Through you and through me. And so that's the hope that Jesus now calls us to go and to proclaim. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. And friends, as they do, uh, you might be asking yourself, okay, like, I'm hearing this, I'm feeling that call, I'm feeling it stirring in my heart, I'm feeling kind of the Holy Spirit saying to me, yep, it, you got you to do something, you got to take a step. What's, what is that first step? Where, where do I even begin? How do I begin to offer restoration to our ruined world? Well, friends, let me encourage you, we should begin where God's people always begin, and that is in prayer. That is in prayer. Throughout the season of Lent, we, we talked about this out on Ash Wednesday evening, we have placed in the pews or the chair in front of you these cards, all right? And, and, and what we're asking you to do is, is spend some time in prayer, and we'll, we'll take a couple of moments after this sermon here when I close us, right, to just ask God to bring to mind those people that, that we need to be praying for, those, those situations or circumstances that we need to be praying for. And you can write, write it here on this, on this card, and, this, and then you tear off the little, the little part, put the big part in the offering basket, take the little card home with you, put it on your fridge, whatever. You can fill out more than one. All right, I know as Presbyterians you need instructions. You can fill out more than one of these, all right, okay? You, you don't have to get it all in on one card, all right? You don't have to list the person's name. Just say a family member, a friend. Right? A situation, a circumstance, whatever it might be, we're going to be posting them on this wall all through the season of Lent. We already got 80 to 100 cards Wednesday night. All right? We are going to be praying for God to do a restorative work in the lives of those that we love, in the lives of those we live among, the lives of our, the people in our community, the people in our nation, the people around the world. So whoever God is calling you to pray for, Whatever situation God is calling you to pray for, I encourage you to write that down. All right, again, drop it in the offering plate. We're going to be doing this week after week after week. The proclamation of the gospel, friends, begins as we join together to pray to God for the restoration of our world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, what a glorious thing you have done in Jesus Christ. 
to bring restoration to the ruined world in which we live through the ruin of your own Son. God, you love us so much. You sent your only begotten Son into this world for the express purpose of experiencing ruin so that we don't have to. Father, I pray that we would lay hold of that truth, or rather that that truth would lay hold of us, and it would change us, and it would bring us to our knees in humility and surrender before you, God. And I pray that it would not just do that for us, but God, that we would then go out and we would share what you have done with others. God, we would start in prayer. She would call to mind even now those people and those situations that we need to be praying for. And so, Father, we just want to take a minute or two here ask you, God, to speak. Whatever, God, whatever people you lay on our heart, whatever situations you lay on our heart, help us to write that down so that as a community, we can begin to intercede and to pray for the restoration of all things. Would you do that now, God? Speak. Father, I know it is, sometimes some situations seem too impossible, too big, too far gone. I pray, God, that even those situations, even those people, God, would be called to mind in our hearts, God, and as we lift them up in prayer, only your Holy Spirit can bring people to saving faith. Only your Holy Spirit, regenerating our hearts, can bring people to repentance, to bring nations to their knees. God, would you do that? Help us join in the faithful work of praying and then going out to proclaim this good news to the world. We give you thanks, God, for these things. We pray that in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and sing our final song together, friends.